Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. When storytelling and visual art combine to create comics, the result is an art form. A comprehensive exhibition of comic art will open tomorrow in the Zuckerman Museum at Kennesaw State University. The show is titled The Ninth Art, Frames and Thought Bubbles. Later this hour, we'll hear from the curator, Gio Sip, director of Kennesaw School of Art and Design. First, spring in January as the Emory Chamber Music Society begins its spring season of free concerts. Whenever I hear the expression, where there's a will, there's a way, Will Ransom immediately comes to mind. The concert pianist and Emory University professor has continuously found ways to make classical music more inclusive and widely available to Atlantans especially, often free of charge. Dr. Ransom is founder and director of the Emory Chamber Music Society. He joins us now to talk about their new season. Well, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. And can we still say Happy New Year? We it's been can. Quite, quite a start to, to the 2021. Hmm? Yes, we can say Happy New Year through January, I think. You and your colleagues were quick to adapt to the virtual format of performing concerts. Can you take us back to that time and tell us where the Chamber Music Society is now? Well, when things closed down in March and uh, everybody scrambled and most events were just completely canceled, you know, we hadn't started broadcasting concerts, either live streaming them or recording them in advance. Most places weren't set up to do that. And so it did take a few months to, to get in action. I think most of us started with home videos of concerts, sometimes solo, sometimes small groups, uh, especially if there are musicians in the family, which there often are. So we'd take out our cell phones and we'd 
record something and the sound we found was remarkably good in the video and everyone found ways to broadcast it, whether it was on YouTube or uh, some other format as well. And through the summer, I think everyone, I certainly was experimenting with different ways and venues were getting new technology put in at Emory. We had a whole new system put in for live streaming with three cameras and a much better audio system. Some venues were already wonderfully set up for it. Interestingly, particularly churches, because they often broadcast their Sunday services. And so First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta has done an extraordinary job of live streaming and recording and then broadcasting concerts as well. And we have a wonderful new collaboration with First Pres as well, a new box lunch series that started last fall. So we were plugged into that venue in a, a wonderful way also. So yeah, ADAPT, that's the name of the game. And I feel like we've done a really good job. And despite all the various restrictions in many different ways, whether it's legal or um, just health-wise or technological, we found a way to keep the music playing. And I feel really good about the quality of our performances and our programs as well. I don't think we've missed a beat. No, with good reason you should feel. And again, supporting where there's a will, there's a way. Your spring season kicks off in just a moment with a lunchtime concert. And that's such a wonderful series, the Box Lunch series. Will all of the spring season concerts be virtual? Yes, they will once again this spring. And we'll also have uh, three master classes by some wonderful string players who will be coaching our own Emory students. And those will be publicly available to view as well. And uh, if you've never seen a master class, those are a lot of fun uh, to see how a master teacher helps the younger students improve. It's sometimes quite dramatic when you can hear the, the improvement just in a few minutes. Yeah. In fact, speaking of drama, there was even a play called Master Class, which imagined the great opera singer Maria Callas one-on-one -on -one with a student. A master class is something to behold, even if you're not a music student or a musician. Exactly, yeah. Now, Tomorrow, the evening series begins with an all-star event. Please tell us about it. Right. So we offer now four different series uh, with our new box lunch being the fourth one. We have the Cook Noontime series on Fridays about once a month. The new box lunch series from Cook Presbyterian, which are pretty much every other month on different Fridays at noon and our family series designed for younger audiences, but really appropriate for audiences of all ages. And those are on Sundays at four usually. And then our Emerson series, which is the most formal series. They usually take place in the evenings, Friday or Saturday nights often, occasionally Sunday afternoons at four. Um, I've tried to design the whole Chamber Music Society. So in a sense, we have something for everybody and can reach audiences from the young children in the family series to music lovers of all ages. Um, and uh, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm very, it's very important to me that we keep these programs free because that has made for an enormous audience and 
kept music really growing and alive. Oh, and I should mention also, of course, now we talk about the evening series, but all of these concerts, uh, which are live streamed, are then available afterwards as well. So people can view them at eight in the morning if they want to, as you wake up in bed. But tomorrow night, we'll start off with a concert that I'm calling the All-Star Trio. The entire spring season I had to completely revise since we're not allowed to have any outside guests uh, perform live at Emory on the campus or to bring them in even to perform off campus as well. So originally our program was called the Three Artistic Directors and was focused around Grammy award-winning cellist Zul Bailey, who's just an incredibly dynamic uh, cellist and person. And he has a number of festivals and series that he runs as artistic director. And violinist Linda Rosenthal, who was the founder of the Juno Jazz and Classics, which I then uh, directed for about five years. And myself, who of course directs the one here in Atlanta and the Highlands Cashers Chamber Music Festival in North Carolina. So we were gonna bring the three of us together and perform at each one of our festivals, actually, which, which we're still planning to do in the future. But since we couldn't have them in live, Zul was able to uh, provide us with a pre-recorded concert with himself and the brilliant violinist Chi Yun and Russian virtuoso pianist Natasha Paremsky. And they're playing music of Brahms and Frank and some of the beautiful Piazzolla trios as well. And it's a filmed house concert. So it feels very much like true chamber music in a beautiful home uh, with, with very good acoustics and uh, nice video as well. Was this filmed before the pandemic? It wasn't. This was filmed last September. And so it's now, it's not a live stream. It's available for us though. Are they masked? They weren't. And I didn't even think about that when I set this up and then I found out that uh, anything that's presented under the Emory name has to follow all of our guidelines, which are some of the most strict around, which is great. Uh, so we had to apply for an exemption to have this video shown under the rubric of the Chamber Music Society. But the three musicians, two of them uh, actually live together, uh, Natasha and Zul are a couple. <laughs> And Chi Yun came in and they were all tested before they went into a 10-day bubble to do this project. Oh, wow. And they are sitting six feet apart as well, which, which makes for interesting chamber music. Indeed. You have to have very good hearing. That's right. This program, if measured by calorie content, would be very high. The music offered on this all-star trio concert is so rich and delicious. The Franck Sonata is one of the masterworks in the string repertoire.
it is. And I remember hearing、uh, Natasha, the pianist, play it、uh, actually with cello a couple of years ago. And there's a moment in the piece between the second and third movement,、uh, kind of the slow movement, and then this amazingly wild, virtuosic third movement. And she did just something small between those two movements that made my hair stand on, and it was so thrilling. I stole it and and have adopted it when I play the piece. As well. <laughs> if you're listening carefully, listen to that moment between the second and third movements. Which Brahms? This will be the third of the three violin sonatas. So the concert is really featuring Chian and Natasha、uh, most, although Zul joins them for a couple of the Piazzolla trios. Yeah, let's talk about Piazzolla, the great. Argentinian composer Astor Piazzolla, who really elevated tango to the concert stage, to the symphony hall, as well as the more intimate chamber concerts surrounding. Not your grandmother's tango. <laughs> no, what incredible music though! It, it's so beautiful and catchy. It makes you want to dance and sing and cry and laugh all at the same time. And、uh, one one of my great regrets is that Piazzolla kind of became、uh, internationally famous maybe in the eighties when when classical musicians started really embracing his music and playing it a lot. And I. Totally fell in love with the music, like everybody else did, and I was able to commission Piazzolla to write a piano quintet. And unfortunately, he died before he was able to even get started、oh. on it.、But、that had come to fruition. Oh my goodness! Well, how impressive that you were able to commission him. Well, well, as I say, he was still traveling, sort of just getting to the top of the radar in the classical fields in the in the eighties. And I just happened to to get in before he totally exploded. Wow! Now you have always been great about crossing music with other disciplines, including football. What are you doing Super Bowl Sunday? <laughs> I love this program. I have to credit and thank Timothy Ulrich, the brilliant organist from Emory University, who came up with this idea over ten years ago. To have a concert, a one-hour concert at 4 p.m. on Super Bowl Sunday, featuring music of J.S. Bach, and calling it the Bach Bowl. I just love that. I, I love a corny title. Corny and alliterative. 
Exactly, yeah, the best kind. So Timothy, of course, as an organist, uh, often or always featured lots of incredible keyboard music, although it wasn't completely keyboard music. But he decided uh, last year that he did not want to put together the program anymore. And I was absolutely thrilled and honored that he asked if I'd be interested in taking it over and incorporating it as part of the chamber music series concerts. And I absolutely jumped at the chance because there's so much great repertoire that we don't always include in our concerts, uh, some of the earlier Baroque music and music of Bach. And again, just because it's such a, a perfect opportunity for a, a different and special concert with a great tag. So this year we were originally planning in pre-COVID to expand out what he had done, which was usually solo keyboard or maybe a cantata with a singer, an aria, or possibly a, a couple of players. And I was going to present two of the great Brandenburg concertos, which are some of the most joyous and, and alive music that there is. Uh, but they're rather large ensembles. Some of them are 12 or 14 players or even more depending on how you present them. But again, with the restrictions in place, I had to revise that. So I went in totally the opposite direction. And our Bach Bowl this year is titled Bach for One. And we'll have four incredible soloists playing some of the solo music of Bach, including David Kusharan playing the G minor solo violin sonata. Uh, Inzi Kong will play the C major suite on the viola. Timothy will perform one of his own paraphrases of a chorale, and Christina Smith, the amazing first flute with the Atlanta Symphony, will play the partita in A minor. Wow. Chinese New Year is in February. How will we celebrate, and which animal is it this year? Uh, it's, I believe it's the year of the ox this year. And this is another concert that when it falls on the right day on one of our concert days is just perfect. And it falls on a Friday this year. So we're able to incorporate it into our noontime series, which is great. And on this particular program, we're going to feature the Vega Quartet, who were originally formed in Shanghai, China. And three of the members are still those original members from Shanghai. And in this concert, they'll be joined by Helen Kim, who's not Chinese, but she's fitting in wonderfully. <laughs> and they will perform Western versions of some beautiful Chinese folk songs, as well as some classical music by Chinese composers for about 20, 25 minutes. And then we have an incredible Guzheng player coming in. Yao Lu will join us to play traditional Chinese music on traditional Chinese instruments. She's bringing a couple of friends with her. I think one will play the Arhu. Atlanta is fortunate to have an extraordinary harpist in Elizabeth Ramey Johnson, who is principal harpist with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. She performs a lot of chamber music, and she has also nurtured young talent through the 
Urban Harp Youth Ensemble. What will she be bringing to the Chamber Music Society? I'm thrilled to present Elizabeth on our series. Uh, the harp is really one of the most magical instruments to me, not just because of, of the sound and the music that's written for it, but it's one of those instruments I just simply don't understand how people can play it. Both the plucking of the strings, which is what we see, but also the footwork that they have to do, which we really don't see. They have something like eight or 10, or I'm not sure how many pedals down, and each pedal has three different levels, and that's how they change the notes uh, from diatonic scales to chromatic scales. And so their feet are going like crazy all the time as their fingers are doing the same thing. And you put it all together, and I just honestly don't know how they do it. <laughs> the piano is basically just a, a harp stand, uh, laid on its side and played with a different mechanism. We, we push down our keys, which then strike the strings that the harpist would be plucking with their fingers. So I'm thrilled not only to have the instrument, but to have this extraordinary harpist playing Elizabeth, who's also on our faculty at Emory, which is great. So she can appear on our stages with no problem uh, in terms of the restrictions. And she's going to play a program of us of both some collaborations and some solo music as well. And the collaborations will include the beautiful fantasy for violin and harp by Sessons. very cool piece which I have never heard performed live by Arnold Bax called Fantasy Sonata for viola and flute. So it's kind of a fantastic concert with a fantasy and a fantasy sonata. Oh, it's so exciting. And we have only gotten through the middle of March. So it's not even officially the first day of spring with all of these spring semester concerts you've talked about. You'll have to come back to talk about the rest of the season, Will. I hope you would be willing to come back on. Thank you. I'd love to. Yes, we keep busy. We have concerts almost every week when things are normal. We have generally uh, about a program a week, a public program a week, and then all sorts of things happening both at Emory and around the community in terms of master classes and uh, more informal pop-up concerts. Uh, we do programs at Emory called Mozart at the Med School, where, where the Vega Quartet perform in the lobby of the medical school, and Ludwig at the Law School, same thing there. Uh, we've even done Bach at the B School for the business <laughs> school. Lots of fun stuff to just keep music playing throughout the community and bring as much joy as we can. Aww, you do that immensely. Before we go... I was hoping you'd talk about music for healing. I know this is something dear to you. Yes, absolutely. Something I've wanted to do for a long time is to create a program where we take great music into places where people really desperately need it. Uh, 
uh, where they're truly hurting. And that's into hospitals, into nursing homes. And the Chamber Society has received an incredibly generous gift from an anonymous donor, which is going to allow us to expand our activities even more. And towards the top of the list is this new uh, set of programs called Music for Healing, where hopefully in the fall, if the restrictions have been lifted, we will take uh, members of the Vega Quartet, we'll split them up into groups of two, into hospitals and nursing homes around the Atlanta area, including Children's Healthcare, Shepherd's Spine Center, hopefully Grady, Emory Hospital, and start to, to bring this music to some of the people that I, I feel really need it the most. Dr. Will Ransom is director of the Emory Chamber Music Society of Atlanta and professor of piano at Emory. The first in the Box Lunch Series concerts begins at noon today with violinist David Coucheron. Tomorrow evening's all-star trio virtual concert will begin at 8 p.m. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Community Farmers Markets is an organization committed to bringing Atlantans food in accessible and safe ways. In response to COVID-19, They created an online portal that allows users to purchase goods from local vendors and then pick them up from a safe location. They've just reopened two of the local farmers markets this month, Oakhurst and Grant Park. The executive director of Community Farmers Markets, Katie Hayes, spoke with us last year when the operation began. Community Farmers Markets in general has been very proactive about being a safe place to buy your groceries. So the Grant Park Winter Market was an operation when all of this started. um, And we immediately looked around the country for best practices. We created hand washing stations that are mandatory for entering the market. We have the booths spaced out so that the vendors themselves are not in too close a proximity to each other. And we have lots of other safety protocols in place. For example, our farmers, one handles produce, the other person will handle money, so there's not cross-contamination. 
everyone's going to be required to have a mask. You know, all of our employees will have gloves and be following proper, proper safety protocol. Something else that we, we realized from the very beginning that it was important in service industries like ours, people often come to work when they're sick because they're afraid they won't get paid. So we guaranteed that our staff would get paid whether or not they came to work so that people weren't forced to come if they were sick or scared. And so that's been good for morale. Definitely hard uh, to keep up with payroll, but we know that there's that our staff will not be coming to the markets if they're sick. So lots of safety protocols in place. And then we also built out our online farmer's market. So it's shop CFM ATL. And it's basically the largest a la carte local ordering system in Atlanta. And you can go on from Wednesdays and Fridays and order whatever you like. So you can pick out radishes from Mayfloor and lettuce from Cosmos and shrimp from Middle Georgia. So you can you can pick out the different items that you like from the farmers that you normally would support. So we have we have pretty much everything on the site um, that you would find at a local farmers market. And we've been we've turned all five of our market locations into pickup only points. It's definitely been an experiment, a challenging one, aggregating all of that produce and products from so many different farms. And so we've been doing it so that the pickup is on Wednesdays at each site. So we have a site in Oakhurst, Decatur, Ponce, East Atlanta, and Grant Park. And then we'll we'll eventually hopefully move to a model where we have the markets open and the pre-ordering available as well. Again, we just want to create as many food access points as possible. The people have been really appreciative of the of the order and pickup site because it, you know, it's a very low contact um, way of shopping. So people go online, they place their order, and then when they arrive to pick up, they basically just write their name down, put it in their window, and then pop the trunk. And so they don't even have to touch any of us. And of course, we're being very safe when we put the bag in the trunk. You know, when they get home, they can wipe off the bag and pretty much be good to go. That's great for vulnerable populations or just anyone that doesn't feel comfortable being in a space with other people at all. Katie Hayes is the executive director of Community Farmers Markets. Oakhurst Farmers Market is now open on Saturdays at Scepter Brewing Arts, the brew pub. The Grant Park Farmers Market is now open on Sundays at the Beacon ATL. More information about the Atlanta Farmers Markets can be found on their website, cfmatl.org. When storytelling and visual art combine to create comics, the result is an art form. A comprehensive exhibition of comic art will open Saturday in the Zuckerman Museum at Kennesaw State University. Gio Sip is director of Kennesaw's School of Art and Design and curated the new exhibition titled The Ninth Art, Frames, and Thought Bubbles. He joins us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Lois, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. 
Please tell us about the title of the exhibition. Well, the ninth art is a term that has been used, oh, for the past 60, 70 years, I would suppose. And it refers to a lecture that was given by a French philosopher way back in the, in the 19th century, in which he designated seven forms of art, which have now um, have increased. But the original art forms were architecture, sculpture, painting, music, dance, poetry, and later film, and then television. And, uh, and comics is referred to as the ninth art. And it's a form of storytelling that has its roots way back in, in visual history and visual narrative. But uh, the ninth art is how comics are referred to principally in Belgium and in France. And we pay homage to them a little bit because we have a collection of work uh, from our Belgian colleagues who are included in this exhibition. Uh, we have uh, an articulation agreement with Essa Saint-Luc, which is one of the leading design schools in Brussels, and uh, they teach comics and illustration, and our School of Art and Design has an articulation agreement with them. And so we wanted to honor the, the European tradition of the ninth art, as well as celebrate a really encyclopedic um, overview of American comic art that begins at the turn of the 20th century, essentially. It's curious to me that the Franco-Belgian audience is more receptive to embracing art that, at least in the U.S., has harder drawn lines about categories. Well, I suppose that's, that's true in some respects, although I think comics as an American cultural art form are, are really rather significant in its roots. I think we can also look back to Europeans such as Daumier and even Francisco Goya. Honoré Daumier was a 19th century French artist best known for his caricature. Some may know his caricatures of lawyers. He loved drawing those. And much of his work was quite political. Comics are very frequently used today, for example, in infographics. If you are flying on an airplane, your safety card is going to be told in visual narrative. It's going to be sequential art, one image after the next. That's something that doesn't need translation. And as the world gets more pluralistic and connected, visual language becomes more and more important in, in terms of our general conversation. So I argue that comics may have been part of a visual language that went back as far as the Etruscans or the Egyptians with their visual narratives and and even if we look at stained glass windows and illuminated manuscripts, visual narratives were a way of conveying information and telling stories before uh, people were literate. And in America, comics really became an art form when people were beginning to emigrate from European countries and South American countries and 
they were coming to the United States. And so comics originally became a way of helping immigrant populations learn how to read. But not only that, they became a much more uh, aggressive advertising medium. For example, Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst with their New York World and New York Journal newspapers, we've heard the term yellow journalism. And uh, yellow journalism essentially began with the competition between those two large newspapers and those publishers to engage readers and subscribers. And yellow journalism referred to very flamboyant and hyperbolic journalism that you might see in, in contemporary British tabloids, uh, where it was very sensational. And Richard Altkult, who is included in our exhibition, created a character named the Yellow Kid and, and a little bit later, Buster Brown. We have a couple of Buster Brown originals in our exhibition as well. And uh, the yellow journalism referred to that hyperbolic journalism and, and the yellow kid, which was um, used to essentially talk about topics of the day. So you had comics being published in both the New York World and the New York Journal that reached particular immigrant populations. For example, the Cats and Jammer kids started out very early and it is written in an idiom that would make sense to early German immigrants to the United States. The, the language, the cadence, the rhythms of speech, uh, all spoke to that immigrant population. So it was creating loyalty among audiences, reading audiences, but it was also uh, helping those audiences assimilate into American culture and begin their American experience. So comics plays a huge role in that. And its early development was all about telling stories and narratives that brought together people and their particular human condition. And of course, it's, it's branched from there. When I read that the term, the ninth art, dates to the 1960s, I thought about the 1960s pop art movement and how artists such as Roy Lichtenstein painted comic book scenes on large-scale canvases, works that are in some of the world's greatest museums and collections. Joe, how do you feel about mainstream modern artists co-opting comic images? Well, that has certainly been a long tradition of artists such as uh, Roy Lichtenstein and even oh, some of the European artists like uh, Sigmar Polka, for example, who is uh, from Germany. I think using popular culture as part of a language that can be translated to more contemporary fine art with a different kind of audience is fine. Yet I've had conversations with some of the artists who created the original images from which Roy Lichtenstein took their work and, and manipulated it uh, just a little bit. Those artists weren't too pleased about it, of course. But I think that there's room in the sandbox for everybody to play. Roy Lichtenstein was taking an image and creating 
a unique original. He did it with um, some of the 1960s comics, but he also later did a series on, on Blondie, for example, and took some of Chick Young's original Blondie images and, and played with that as well. Um, I, think that's, I think that's absolutely fine. And you see many artists doing that today. But what I find particularly interesting is that you have the Smithsonian Museum, you have the Louvre, you have the Pompidou Center, major international art venues that have opened their exhibitions to surveys of comics or to particular comics artists, recognizing that that language is indeed an important language and a very popular visual language. I read just the other day that graphic novel sales surged by 30% in the past year. And interestingly enough, visual fiction, so either manga, which is in Japan, or graphic novels um, make up a large proportion of the readership everywhere around the world, with the exception of the United States. So the United States is coming along. And I think in American comics, what we are, are used to is what we see in, in contemporary movies, the action films, the Marvel films, the DC films, which are really originally sort of mythological creatures in American cultural history that were created by young Jewish immigrants who were trying to assimilate into America and creating um, heroes that transcended their own personal experiences growing up in dense urban areas where life was very difficult. So Jack Kirby, for example, who created Captain America and Thor and many other uh, popular comics heroes grew up in a tenement in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Will Eisner, who essentially created the American comic book and is known for uh, his character, The Spirit, also grew up as the son of a um, scene painter who uh, painted background scenes for the Yiddish theater. And Will Eisner was an incredible business person and recognized the, the power and impact that uh, reproducing original content of um, comics images could make to, to uh, consumers' society. He created an industry. And so we have these images available for you to see in our collection. The exhibition will be open to the public as well as um, soon will be a virtual exhibition as well once we edit all the content in and, and distribute that. Well, let's talk about some of the works that will be on display. Please tell us about Little Nemo by Yuko Shimizu. Well, Yuko Shimizu is actually a, an illustrator, a contemporary American illustrator who works out of New York, who did a, a series of pieces based on a reproduction of um, a Little Nemo book that was paying homage to the original Little Nemo character. So Little Nemo began in the early part of the 20th century, in the early 1900s. 
and was created by an artist named Windsor McKay. And we have a couple of his originals in there and we juxtapose his originals with Yoko Shimizu's contemporary take on that genre. And Windsor McKay was an absolutely brilliant designer, brilliant draftsman. And Little Nemo uh, was a character, a young boy. The stories were about his having dreams at night, fantastical dreams. And the dreams were interpreted in this one-page comic format that would run in the Sunday papers. It was beautifully rendered, sensitively drawn, and exquisitely composed. And for a while, Windsor McKay was one of the most popular entertainers and one of the best known people in America. He was so popular that he even had his own Broadway show in which he would go on stage and draw and would show an animation, one of the earliest animations ever shown to a public audience. And that animation was entitled Little Gertie the Dinosaur. And it was a short segment of uh, hand-drawn dinosaur images of a brontosaurus who was wandering across um, a background and it was hand-drawn and filmed by uh, Windsor McKay. Well, this was astonishing to people because it had never existed before. Remember, this predates film, it predates uh, radio. And so these artists were huge celebrities and they had a public audience that was in the millions. And so to see these pieces, which are very fragile, and we're extremely fortunate to have them, uh, is, is a real privilege to look at and see. And uh, one of the pieces that we have is certainly considered in art circles, one of the most familiar of all the Little Nemo images. But we also start out with a Francisco Goya and uh, a Daumier lithograph because when I was curating the exhibition, I believed that we needed to look at printmaking as well as a very democratic form of art making. That, that is to say, printmaking was a way to make multiples of images that could be put in front of a large consumer audience and not have to be in a specific gallery. So if you look at the work of the German expressionists in the early part of the 20th century, the German expressionist printmakers would essentially wheat paste their prints all over Berlin and they would satirize uh, contemporary German society at that time and speak to what they thought were the inequities and the abuses of, of the German government and the uh, extremism that the German government was beginning to place on its public. And so I thought it important to include a couple of those prints in the exhibition to segue into what later became a very popular entertainment form. And so our exhibition runs the gamut from an early Popeye uh, and uh, Buster Brown through Little Nemo, Crazy Cat, which was created by George Harriman, and George uh, Harriman's work was absolutely brilliant. Crazy Cat talk, talked about 
social and political issues, um, relationship issues, it, with a landscape that was rather indiscernible and brilliantly designed pages. Uh, it was a love triangle between uh, a mouse and a cat, and then an intermediary who was called Officer Pop, who was a, a, a dog. And it was written in an idiom that was rather like uh, the language that you would have heard in Creole Louisiana, for example, because George Harriman was a Creole. He was African-American, was extremely popular. He was very fair-skinned and had people known of his roots, he would never have been published. But as it was, he talked about relationship issues that can now be discerned as how one integrates into society and is accepted and, uh, and is welcomed. But at the time, in that, in that entertainment structure, you really couldn't quite discern what was going on. And so it was very, very sophisticated. And we also have um, Terry and the Pirates by Milton Kniff, who was one of the great uh, artists of the genre. Uh, we have Hal Foster with, with Prince Valiant, and we go all the way up to contemporary comics and uh, peanuts. And even we have a, a Sunday Calvin and Hobbes, which are very rare uh, to see. So we have, approximately 140 pieces in the exhibition. It's extremely comprehensive. And we balance that comprehensive work primarily in black and white with, with those beautifully hand-drawn images with the experimental comics that are being shown by our colleagues from Brussels who are taking the genre of comics and challenging audiences to look at comics as more than something that goes on a printed page and has entertainment value. They're looking at comics as a narrative art form that asks you to respond to that narrative with your own baggage of experiences and predispositions, your likes and your dislikes. And you bring that to the table and you are presented with this series of images and you respond to it. So they're asking you, the Belgians particularly from this group, are asking you to look at comic art in a more discerning way, the way you might go to a museum and gallery and look at a piece of fine art and interact with that. How does it inform your experiences? What is it that you bring to the experience of viewing that challenges preconceived notions. And comics is going in that direction where it can be sculptural, it can be printed, it can be interactive, it could be video, it could be a number of different things. It's just taking a narrative art form and changing things up a little bit. Geo Sip is director of Kennesaw State University School of Art and Design. He curated the exhibition, The Ninth Art, Frames and Thought Bubbles, which opens this weekend at Kennesaw Zuckerman Museum. More information about the exhibition will appear on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. 
You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and cultural life. Monday at 11 a.m., our guests include Dr. Stephen Darcy and the Reverend Dr. Dwight Andrews. They'll tell us about this year's Atlanta Music Festival, exploring the confluence of arts and environmental justice. City Lights producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. We say profound thanks to Kevin Rinker, our original engineer, who becomes the engineer for Closer Look with Rose Scott. And we welcome Shelley Canavy as our new engineer. I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Wishing you a safe and good weekend. Thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.